Hi there. I'm so excited to welcome you to the Arthritis Life Podcast, where we share arthritis life stories and tips for thriving with autoimmune arthritis. My name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis beyond joint pain. I've been living with rheumatoid arthritis for 20 years, and I'm also a mom, occupational therapist, video creator, support group leader, and I created the Room to Thrive self-management program. I am so excited to help you live a more empowered life with arthritis. We're going to cover everything from kitchen life hacks to navigating the healthcare system to coping with friends who just don't get it. Seriously, no topic is going to be off limits on this podcast. My interviewees and I share our honest stories of how chronic illness affects our lives. This includes discussions about mental health, sex, shame, pregnancy, body image, advocacy, self-acceptance, and so much more. You'll hear stories from all ends of the spectrum, from a person who's living in Medicaid remission from psoriatic arthritis to somebody living with severe mobility restrictions and severe pain from rheumatoid arthritis. You'll hear how people manage their conditions in different ways, like medications, mindfulness, movement, social support, work accommodations, and so much more. You'll also hear from rheumatology experts who just get it. We'll dive deep into the science behind chronic pain and what's the latest evidence for lifestyle changes that can help you thrive with arthritis, including exercise, sleep, nutrition, stress reduction, and more. This is your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. I'm so happy today to have Jan Hempstead on the Arthritis Life Podcast. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Come on down. I, I get like in game show mode. <laughs> I get excited. Yeah, can you just let the uh, listeners know real quick uh, where you're from and what is your relationship to arthritis? Sure. I am from upstate New York, which right now is absolutely gorgeous with the fall colors. I'm right near the capital of Albany, New York. And my relationship with arthritis is I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis just about a year ago. So a very eventful time mid pandemic, yeah. or I guess we won't know until later at this point in time, it's mid pandemic. <laughs> yeah. 2021. Okay. Yeah. And I would love to know more about your um, experience getting diagnosed. And um, we should say before you start, because that you are a nurse too, so that you had a lot of medical training, which does change the experience. I think, you know, um, yeah. to some degree in some, maybe some good ways and maybe some challenging ways. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it was a positive or a negative. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I was just gonna say, yeah. Can you walk us through kind of the, what were your first symptoms and you know, what, it, how, how did you get the diagnosis? Yeah. The diagnostic journey was very long and convoluted, partly because I have a few other comorbid conditions. And one of them is Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. And for those who aren't familiar with that, it's a connective tissue disease. And it affects not only your joints, but all connective tissue. And connective tissue is made up of collagen, which is the glue that holds us together. So not only did I already have a lot of joint pain and subluxations, which are partial dislocations and actual dislocations of my joints, but uh, and it affected all of my joints. So it was confusing, a confusing diagnosis um, anyway, and it 
used to be considered rare, not so rare anymore. And I was diagnosed with that a long, long time ago, about 30 years ago. So besides that condition, I had a few others. So I'm considered a complicated patient in the eyes of most physicians. But I started to notice other things that weren't congruent with just Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, EDS for sure. And I was concerned about that. For instance, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, the type that I have, and there's several different types, doesn't typically affect the small joints in your fingers, at least not the type that I have. And I was noticing um, much more pain and stiffness and swelling in my hands and in my feet. So I was concerned about that, first of all. And I also was seeing a very amazing neurologist at Mayo Clinic for a very different reason. I also have autonomic dysfunction or dysautonomia. And he was very, very thorough and he ran a multitude of blood work. And he said to me, I think you have some type of autoimmune disease and that's what's actually causing your dysautonomia. And he goes, I'm wow. not. I'm not a rheumatologist, he said, but I think you've got some underlying autoimmune disease. And I had this huge list of blood tests. And he said, these are abnormal. I don't know what they mean, but they're abnormal. And that was before the pandemic. And I attempted to see two very well-known rheumatologists at major uh, institutions. And the first one saw me and said, you have EDS, you do not have RA. As if um, you can't have both. <laughs> like yeah, you already that, knew you had EDS. Yeah. That, that's basically what he said. And he did it. He did physically examine me. And one of the hallmarks of EDS is being very hypermobile. And so he's bending all of my joints and it was very painful, but he's bending all my joints. He said, yeah, nope, you don't have RA. Even mm. though I had the markers. And the blood for, markers. Wow. Yeah, for any of the listeners who also have RA, I had really high anti-CCP levels. And despite having that, he insisted I didn't have RA. And so it was really frustrating. So I went to another rheumatologist at a very large medical center, teaching medical center. And this was actually during the pandemic. And so it was a telehealth visit and I had sent lots and lots of medical records to him and he reviewed them and over the um, telehealth video he said you're very very complex and I need to review all of this paperwork and then he never got back to me and oh. a month went by and then three months went by and six months went by and I you know kept trying to contact him and there was no response back and wow. you know, I emailed and portal messaged and phone called and never got a call back. And this is really common, by the way, for patients who have multiple comorbid conditions. In my last role mm. as an RN, I actually just retired in my volunteer role in December. I mm. retired after eight years volunteering for a large nonprofit. But wow. this is very common. We used to hear this all the time that patients who have these complex comorbid conditions it's very difficult. Um, patient, uh, physicians don't want to see us because we're so complex that it's difficult to manage us. Mm. So I never heard back from that physician. And then, of course, when the pandemic was at its peak, 
I didn't want to go anywhere. Ultimately, one of the um, conditions that I have is a genetic trait. And one of the physicians that I used to work with at this nonprofit also has have this genetic trait, and it's called hereditary alpha And in communicating with her, she advised me that patients who have this, it's HAT is the acronym for it, hereditary alpha patients who have HAT um, often have autoimmune diseases, but they're modified. HAT, this genetic trait, modifies the autoimmune diseases. So they don't present exactly the same as patients who typically have, you know, the autoimmune disease. So she evaluated me. She got all my blood work and she said, you absolutely have RA. So she began treating me. And for my uh, particular scenario, she said there are some of the biologics that work much better because of this genetic trait. And she started me on a biologic. And within six months, I felt like a very different person. So I was very, very grateful to her. So it was a very long, very long journey. And this well, is and, very common for patients with uh, comorbid conditions. I know, but it's like, you would think that having such a rich medical history yourself, you could think, wow, that should make it easier because you know how to like present. And and also I would say, um, like I, I'm a little bit, su- I'm, I'm unhappily surprised that the first rheumatologist didn't kind of have the clinical reasoning. Like for me as an occupational therapist, I'm not as trained to the same number of years as a doctor, but like we are trained in our masters to be able to kind of ha- clinically reason our way through situations. Like if a patient has a documented hypermobility, and we're evaluating for like rheumatoid arthritis, you would take that into account and say, well, rheumatoid arthritis, you're going to get less. Usually you're going to get stiffness and this joints are less mobile. But if you factor in the hypermobility, like you should be able to look at the big picture. But again, I mean, it's Monday morning quarterback and that's not super helpful, but it's, I'm saying that for people who are listening, like, you know, um, it is sometimes your job to connect the dots, even if you have no medical training, much less an RN, you know? So, um, like, did you find in your years being a patient educator that that was kind of a surprise to a lot of patients? It was a surprise to me. I'm like, I don't want to do your job for you, but, um, um, initially when I very first started, it was a surprise, but as the years went on, I found out that what I actually taught the patients was you have to be your own advocate because no one else is going to advocate for you. And I was in a in the rare disease nonprofit, so it was common for physicians not to let you understand, <laughs> not to understand the rare disease world. Um, and often it was the patients bringing the information to the physician. It's changed a little bit now because the particular rare disease world that I was in, it's become much more um, um, aware. But mm-hmm. the patients and and certainly the nonprofit was out there educating, and that's been very helpful. My frustration is after the fact, just in mm-hmm. the past year, I found a very large study at Dartmouth College, at Dartmouth University, that EDS and RA are fairly common to, yeah. to um, exist together. So I actually sent that study to that first rheumatologist that told me they can't coexist. 
Yeah. And he did respond. Oh, so he believed that they couldn't could yeah. this. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's what, yeah. cause I already knew they could. So I was like, why would she, okay. I yeah, mean, he, and, didn't, he didn't think they would. So I so what did, that study and his response was, well, this is new information to me, but I didn't think you had it anyway. Wow. I just thought it's I, like, I wanted to educate him. So. No. And I think that's actually, I've, I've had this idea for years that first of all, I think it's wonderful that you did that because it is doctors are human beings, nurses are human beings, physical therapists, OTs. We can all have mm-hmm. blind spots or make mistakes or just, yeah, not be, be perfect, you know? And so we have to account for that. And I think the best, the best providers are the ones that are open to being, mm-hmm. you know, gently, um, corrected or gently say, Oh, you know what, actually, like, I know a lot of women who are pregnant or or family planning with rheumatoid arthritis, they have to say, you know what, like, here's the guy, you know, I just want to make sure you saw the guidelines from American college of rheumatology were updated for the safety of medicines and pregnancy in 2020. Like, I know it's like impossible to keep up with everything, especially since 2020, like their lives are taken over by the pandemic. So, you, you know, you could have those conversations like, Hey, like, Cause I've, I've heard so many people come up to me and say, well, my doctor says I can't take any medications on my pregnancy. I'm like, that's not, I said, their doctor might be giving you specific medical advice for you. But if they're saying that in general, none of the medicines are considered safe, that's outdated, you know, information, like here's the guidelines to look at. Um, and so you shouldn't be ashamed or scared to bring, to bring up that with your doctor. And like you said, beautifully be your own advocate. Yeah. I also didn't want another patient to go to him, perhaps in my same scenario. Exactly. And not be diagnosed. So I was just hoping I would save another patient to go through the same thing. And so what did it feel like when you got that diagnosis? Like what emotionally what was that like? <laughs> <laughs> my husband said to me, another diagnosis? Yeah. <laughs> but actually for me, it was relief because my first thought was, why is this happening? Why am I having these symptoms that aren't explained by my present situation? So I was kind of relieved that perhaps something could be done about it, that maybe mm-hmm. there was a medication or a lifestyle change that would improve what was happening. Um, not happy about having another diagnosis, because when you have as many as I have, it's just like, oh, no, one more thing to deal with. But, mm-hmm. you know, being an RN, I was thinking to myself, all right, so I'm solution oriented. So what's the solution for this? <laughs> How are we going to manage it? So I was, I was kind of relieved. Yeah. And I think when you get diagnosed with something that has multiple treatment options, even if due to your comorbidity, some of those aren't available to you, it can be, I mean, I was definitely felt a relief as well in my diagnosis because it was like, you know, there are other times you get diagnosed with something where it's like, we know why this is happening, unfortunately, but there's no treatments for it. And then you're like, mm-hmm. oh, boo, you know, but at least I'm not quote unquote crazy or it's not like I'm just making it up, but you, but you don't have that sense of hope for a treatment. Um, so I can totally see how those, yeah, in <laughs> those would be, uh, feelings would be swirling, but yeah, it is a lot. Um, and I know that's kind of going to be the, the, you know, the theme of what we're going to discuss today is kind of what tips, you know, to manage multiple comorbidities. But first I just wanted to ask briefly about like, what are, you know, a lot of times people listening to the podcast, they're trying to get ideas of like, um, what treatment slash lifestyle factors, you know, help when you have fatigue and pain and other, you know, inflammation from rheumatoid arthritis, what are some of the tools? I mean, you mentioned the biologic, which is obviously like, that's the cornerstone therapy for, for me as well, but what else has helped? 
Oh, I have a whole toolbox. I really do. First of all, I have a wonderful physical therapist and and an occupational therapist. So I have both. And, yeah. And I have a toolbox, a, a, an actual physical toolbox <laughs> on the side of my couch. And it's filled with all my helpful little things. And, and, you know, I can't really at times separate my EDS from my RA because they're both joint related. But um, I use multiple modalities for both my pain and my fatigue. One of the things that's been most difficult for me, especially with the fatigue, is learning to um, pace myself. Because, I, first of all, I was an incredibly physically fit, athletic runner. <laughs> so I went from being nonstop movement, and I yeah. used to run six miles a day, to barely being able to walk. And, wow. you know, when I was when I was a nurse in the hospital, you know, I worked 12 hour shifts and it was nonstop and it was go, 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 go. You never sit down. I mean, getting a break was in, near impossible. So it's, it's a huge, massive lifestyle change. And yeah. thankfully, thankfully, I say each thing came very gradually because each diagnosis was along the way. By the time I got to RA, I was already you know, volunteering for the nonprofit that was from my home and I was able to sit and do that work. Mm -hmm. But the, even the pacing now, I, my mind is incredibly active and I want to do so much, but I have to constantly remind myself that it's okay to stop and rest. And so I literally set my Apple watch for time, you know, timers to sit and rest. Wow. And that's what I do. I have to sit and, and and take a time to rest, put my feet up. I do use meditation a lot, and that's been incredibly helpful. And that's been like a rejuvenator for me for my fatigue as well. I'm a poor sleeper and have been since I was a little kid. So that's not ever changed. Hmm. And so my rest time is really, really important, especially for the fatigue. That was one of the most surprising things for RA is to find out that fatigue was part of it. And that's why I was so absolutely wiped out. Mm -hmm. I mean, not even make it to midday without having to sit down, put my feet up was like astounding to me. So again, setting my timer to actually make myself stop and rest. Yeah, Um, that's, that's a really helpful one because I, I always say with fatigue, that fatigue is much easier to prevent than it is to reduce once it's there. So you want to, yeah, do those little tiny, like, um, yeah, rest breaks. And it's kind of funny because in the literature on exercise and rheumatoid arthritis, um, some people are looking at the concept of quote unquote exercise snacks, like little bursts of exercise throughout the day, rather than like one big burst of exercise. And so like a five minutes, you know, every few hours of exercise versus one 30 hour uninterrupted. And I think it's almost the same for me with, um, fatigue is if I can schedule in those rest breaks, whether I even just close my eyes, not even like formally meditate, just listen to a song or, um, just have actually no sensory stimulation for five minutes 
And that can be great. And I actually also find, I don't know if you find with dysautonomia, but just the act of laying down for Mm -hmm. five to 10 minutes, even if I'm not resting, even if I'm watching a show or something, not if I'm not, my mind isn't resting, but my body's, you know, uh, horizontal, that makes a huge difference. Oh yeah. Massively huge. Yeah. I, I have very low blood pressure from the dysautonomia and very, and low heart rate thing, both of them. So for me to get my legs up is really important. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess maybe part of my work ethic from all the years of being a nurse, I push, 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 push myself all Mm -hmm. the time. So I really found that I have to literally schedule the time into rest. Otherwise I don't, but then I pay for it later. And that's, that's what I call my crash. I crash if I don't. So I have to schedule that time in and, and, by the same token, that exercise is critically important. And I do exactly what you said. I do the little mini exercises. I have strengthening exercises. I have, and because of the dysautonomia, I don't do a lot of upright exercising. I have a recumbent bike. So Mm -hmm. I use the recumbent bike. I have um, TheraBands. I have a lot, you know, like I said, I have a wonderful PT who works me through my exercises. So I have um, brief exercises that I do, and I do them periodically throughout the day, typically after my my rest break. Yeah, that <laughs> makes sense. I, yeah, after I've recouped for a little bit. And music is another thing that I utilize a lot. I'll put my earbuds in, I'll play the music, and I'll exercise to the music because it kind mm-hmm. of pumps me up and rejuvenates me a little bit. So, yeah. you know, those, those are some really good um, tools that I use. Yeah. And, uh, I know in our group, the room to thrive group, the most recent one, we had quite a few more than usual people who have both EDS and, uh, rheumatoid arthritis. And is there anything that you have found like maybe compression gloves or external braces and such that, or yeah. Okay. Yeah. You're wearing them. Oh yeah. I was going to say, Oh, I keep, I have this like constant rotation. I'm like taking them off, putting them back on changing problems. I have too many pairs so that I just, uh, yeah, I just leave them in different rooms. Um, but yeah, yeah. What are some of those, um, yeah. the things that help? These are helpful for not only for RA, but for EDS, because, yes. um, I do sleep with them at night as well, because my hands swell so much at night that I can hardly move them in the morning. So I mm. always sleep with a pair at night and I wear them on and off throughout the day. The reason they're helpful for both RA and EDS is because the compression helps with the, uh, with the joint subluxations with the EDS, but it also helps with the pain for the RA. So I have found these to be absolutely amazing. I have so many pairs. I have I multiple colors. <laughs> is that <laughs> the Grace them. and Abel? It is a great shout out to Sarah. Yeah. She's shout out to Sarah. Yeah. I have every color she, every color that she has, I have a pair of them. That's amazing. I absolutely love them. I mean, they're real. And also because I have dysautonomia, my hands are always freezing. I have very poor. um, Yeah. yeah, So they're wonderful. I love them. I have found these to be one of the most helpful tools for both EDS and for RA. Um, mm-hmm. Before I started wearing these, I would wake up in the morning and my hands would be so swollen that yeah. I couldn't even close my hands. So this has been incredibly helpful. Awesome. I will, I will get, I'm sure you've already given your feedback, but if you don't know what yeah. I, when I say Sarah, uh, Sarah Dillingham, she's actually the very first guest ever on Arthritis Life mm-hmm. podcast back when it was a talk show. 
I interviewed her in 2019 for my talk show, which was, <laughs> which turned into a podcast because I guess a podcast is a non-visual talk show, right? <laughs> but um, that was back when I thought I'd be doing all like in-person interviews. But anyway, she happens to live about 45 minutes from me and we met at an arthritis foundation event. Um, and we ended up doing like the arthritis life hack extravaganza together earlier this year. But anyway, yeah, I'm a big, I, I love the mission of Grace and Abel, which is like to make comfortable, aesthetically pleasing compression gloves, yeah. which for some reason, a lot of medical device people have not prioritized yeah. comfort yeah. or style. So, um, yeah, my plum ones are my favorites. <laughs> the background has it looking weird. Um, but yeah, so the compression is, is great. And yeah, I find something that I, I learned in occupational therapy school, but that it really was one thing to learn it. And another thing to experiencing it, it was that, that compression can kind of for lack of a better word, like scramble the pain signal from your hands up to your brain. Cause it's like yeah. too many things at once. I'm it's a drowning out the pain. I'm now focusing on processing this sensation of compression. And you would just, it's so unintuitive because you would think, well, if something hurts, why would I want to put more pressure on it? And there are some people with like fibromyalgia who say that it's too much that they don't like this. So it's not, a, again, no tool in anyone's toolbox is a, is a guarantee for everyone, right? Except maybe like taking a slow, deep breath is kind of a universal helpful yeah. tool for you know, stress, but, um, but even, I guess some people, yeah, maybe even costochondritis. No, I don't want to take a slow breath, but that's going to hurt my costochondritis. But, but yeah, the point being that the, a lot of people with rheumatoid arthritis and EDS separately, I love the compression gloves. So um. compression also helps with proprioception for EDS patients. Yeah. So, I mean, I wear compression leggings as well for, for that reason and for the dysautonomia but I love the compression. I find it incredibly helpful. Yeah. And proprioception is like your body awareness for those right. who don't know. Yeah. And I actually, I have this theory that it is disrupted in rheumatoid arthritis as well, but I don't have data to support that other than right. actually, I think there is some data because there's, I, I know I found an article that was like proprioceptive retraining for RA because proprioceptors are located in the joints. Yeah. So if you have damage to the joints, it's understandable that you would have, you know, they're in the joints of the muscle tendons. So uh, Cause I have always before having RA, I was extremely, extremely athletic, you know, played, played college soccer at Vassar, you know, upstate New York was getting free tours every fall of the of beautiful leaves. And, um, you know, I never dropped things. I never, you know, bumped into things and, um, and I was really good at art and everything, you know, fine motor stuff. And I definitely have found over you know, the 20 years of having RA that it's gotten, my proprioception has gotten worse. I'm dropping things, breaking things, you know, bumping into things, hitting my head on things. So maybe that's more attention. <laughs> it's hard to disentangle attention from, um, you know, quote unquote clumsiness sometimes, but yeah, propio proprioception is one of the hidden senses along with vestibular and interoception, but Okay. Oh, but is there any other tools? Like, do you use any like, like, um, braces or, you know? Yeah, I do, but I, I use them mainly for my EDS. I have full leg okay. braces. I wear oh, okay. you know, braces yeah. for my EDS. I don't, I do use, um, wrist braces. I have grace enabled wrist brace. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yes, I use that as well. Um, because my wrists aren't involved as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't use any ankle braces 
but only because I wear full KFO braces. So those are knee, foot, knee, foot, and ankle, knee, ankle, foot um, braces. Yeah. So and, into my shoes. and is your EDS type the hypermobile? It is. That's it why is. I assumed. Sorry, but I was like, wait, let's make sure we say that out, out loud. Yeah, it is. It's the, it's the hypermobile type. For whatever reason, and we're not sure why, it might be related to the hereditary alpha tryptophanemia genetic trait. Mine's pretty mm-hmm. advanced, so I have daily yeah. dislocations, and that's the reason that I wear the braces. It really is. Um, sorry to nerd out, but um, not. I'm not sorry to you. I know you don't mind nerding out, no. but people listening. <laughs> but you know, it was funny. I literally was just driving around our neighborhood, looking at like because it's Halloween time, looking at these skeletons hanging in people's yards. You know. <laughs> Just nice, not morbid things. No, but, and I was thinking like in occupational therapy school, you know, I I really went to occupational therapy school to help people like be able to function better in their daily lives. I wasn't as much interested in like the kinesiology and anatomy and physiology. I was like, I want to learn just enough about that to be able to help people more, you know, and Mm -hmm. um, help kids like my, my at the time I thought what I was going to do is work with children with um, developmental differences and neurological differences and physical disabilities like CP cerebral palsy. And, um, and I did end up doing that, but also, um, but anyway, point being, um, when I, I remember this aha moment, like one of our professors was talking about how, like, literally like your skeleton is just held up by like, (laughs) I know it sounds so obvious, but it's like, like obviously gravity is like acting on us all the time. And so if we don't have that tone in our muscles and our connective tissues and everything, it will fall down. Like, and it, and it's really obvious if you see someone who's had a stroke because they don't have the innervation to their muscles and your shoulder, just if the person's shoulder, then you see, it's like one side of the body is not affected in a stroke. The other side is. So it's like, you have a pre and post kind of comparison. You see one shoulder is just looking, you know, quote unquote normal. The other one is just hanging. And I mean, that's in your case, it's not from a stroke, but it's from the EDS, but it's like, it's just kind of, um, it's, it just blows my mind to be honest, sometimes thinking that that's all that's holding us up, you know? Um, so. Hence the braces, because I was falling all the time. Exactly. So yeah. Oh yeah. Thank you. Thank you for tying that together. Yeah. So that you need this, if your body isn't maintaining whether it's the muscle tone or the connective tissue kind of not strength, but you know, whatever the right word is again, (laughs) I wasn't, I I learned just enough to be dangerous, but yeah. Well, what the way that the um, EDS specialist explained it to me is with EDS, most people's muscles, tendons, and ligaments are, you know, they're collagen based. So they're, they connect the bone, you know, bone to bone Mm -hmm. and they hold them in place. But in someone with EDS, that he said, think of it like this way. There's a rubber band. The rubber band goes out and it comes mm. right back in. It goes out, it comes right back in. But the patient with EDS, it goes out and it doesn't come back in. Or it goes out a little mm. bit and it comes back in just a little. And each time it goes out, it comes back in less and less and less. So for an EDS patient, the more it's stretched, it just keeps staying out and out and out and out further until there's no more elasticity left, left at all because yeah. the collagen is defective. So eventually, and of course, the older you get, I'm 66. So the older you get, the less elasticity you have. So my legs have much less bounce back. So my knees were dislocating. My ankles were dislocating. My hips weren't staying where they needed to stay. So I was just falling all the time. But these Mm. braces are a blessing and they allow me to walk without falling most often. 
it's really just like that. providing <laughs> the extra. Yeah. <laughs> I might fall for other reasons, but no, yeah, no, <laughs> but yeah, you, they, they provide that, um, tension to yes. keep the joints in place. Yeah. Do they ever do, um, and I'm sorry for, forgive my ignorance, but do they ever do like just full joint replacements Would that help for like knees and hips or for it? Or well, no? they, that, that helps the actual bone, but it doesn't do anything for the muscles or the tendons. Right. Right. Yeah. So it doesn't yeah. really hold that in place. My dad had EDS and my dad had joint replacements, but he, oh, he still, did. Oh. Yeah. They need mm-hmm. to figure out how to like, not just the bone replacement, but like replace the college, you know. They do, they do sometimes do cadaver replacements oh, of tendons yeah. and ligaments, but the attachment replacements aren't always very successful and they don't last very long. I've had 19 orthopedic surgeries and none of them have been successful. They, oh. they last for like six months to a year. I've had I'm my so shoulders sorry. done. Like I just realized I was that person that's like, have you tried this? I just was like curious. <laughs> it, sorry. Um, but yeah, yeah. yeah. That's Which is 19. why RA is just a complicating factor because RA, as you know, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. complicates the joint issues even more. So hopefully, you know, being on a jack inhibitor will prevent further destruction because yeah. I don't want to have any joint replacements. No, no. And they're becoming so much less common. Like I have friends who are like certified hand therapists who work in hand, um, surgery and hand therapy clinics. And they said like, you know, we used to see so many patients, um, with rheumatoid arthritis, with joint replacement surgeries, like in, in the knuckles, you know, and, in the hand, like, we just don't see any of them anymore with the current medications. So that's like kind of a good, you know, um, a good development, but still, obviously I want, you know, I understand your, your, your fear. If you have ever felt completely lost or utterly alone while trying to navigate real life with rheumatic disease, listen up. I am here for you. I created an educational program to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported and connected in a matter of weeks. And it's called Room to Thrive. After earning a master's in occupational therapy and completing hundreds of hours of additional training, I created a step-by-step guide to help you truly thrive with rheumatic disease. This is the only program I know of that's designed to improve quality of life for people living with inflammatory autoimmune forms of arthritis, like rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, Sjogren's disease, and more. During the self-paced lessons, you'll learn how to manage pain and fatigue, cope with stress, navigate relationships, and continue doing the things that matter to you and bring you joy. The goal is really to help you improve your quality of life and learn how to thrive with your rheumatic disease right now, rather than waiting for a distant day when it might be cured or healed. I really created the down-to-earth, practical, heartfelt resource I wish I had had when I was first diagnosed at age 20. If you want even more in-depth support, you can join the 12-week Room to Thrive virtual support group where you'll be surrounded by people who actually get what you're going through, people who will provide the encouragement, validation, and support that you deserve. Each group is expertly moderated, so you don't have to worry about the kind of misinformation that spreads like wildfire in the free-for-all social media groups. If you're on the fence, don't just take my word for it. Here's what Katie had to say in March 2023. I was lost and overwhelmed with my RA diagnosis. It felt overwhelming to know what to read, what to do, how to spend my energy trying to research on the internet. 
Room to Thrive did that for me. It's been like getting a crash course in my diagnosis along with a community who gets it. To see all the details, including the dates for the next support groups, go to the link in the show notes or bit.ly slash thrive room with a capital T in capital R. You can also just email me anytime at info at myarthritislife.net. And don't delay if you're interested because each group is capped at 16 people or less in order to make a small, intimate group atmosphere. Thanks so much for your time. And I can't wait to get started with the next groups. And I can't wait for those of you who are interested in the self-paced option to go ahead and join that at any time. Bye-bye for now. And that's what I do want to get into, into, yeah, this concept of, you know, having comorbidities. And when we say comorbidities, that's just the fancy word for multiple diagnoses, multiple mm-hmm. conditions, multiple disease processes. Yeah. It can be really stressful. And I think when I first became a chronic illness patient um, in my, you know, at 19, 20 years old, I kind of had this idea that all my doctors were like, like in the same place somehow, even though they physically weren't, I somehow was like, well, they'll talk to each other. Like, cause you know, if you're, you're a student, you're used to like everyone, you know, you go to school and like your professors might talk to each other, or, you know, you high school, everyone's in the same cafeteria, but you're like, took me a few years. And I was like, these people, like the right hand does not talk to the left hand. Like my gastroenterologist doesn't talk to the rheumatologist. They don't talk to the, you know, so anyway, but that's my experience, but yeah, what, um, what have been some of the unique challenges? I guess, I mean, that whole, that could be the whole episode, but some of the challenges of having multiple um, co- and being labeled, you know, as a quote unquote, like complex patient. Yeah. There are multiple challenges. And, you know, again, one of the things being a nurse educator, one of the things that I learned very early on is that specialists don't talk to other specialists. If you have a really good primary care physician, and it's tougher and tougher to get one. Hopefully your primary care can help coordinate your care, but again, that's rare. But specialists don't talk to other specialists. Because some of the conditions I have are considered rare, I don't even go to the same um, health systems for my specialty care. I have some in Boston, Massachusetts. I have some in Scottsdale, Arizona. I have one in University of Mississippi. I have some in New York State. I'm now going to be going to one in the University of Pittsburgh. To coordinate the care from all of those specialties is nearly impossible. So what's incredibly difficult is to get those specialists to talk to each other. And the one thing that I have learned, thank goodness, for the Cures Act. And for those of you who don't know what the Cures Act is, it's a federal um, act that states that the physicians have to upload all of your information into your portal. So anyone that doesn't have a portal, make sure you, if you're just not comfortable doing the portal, make sure that you have your physician put all of your information into the portal and print it out. And this is an online, the portal's like online an online yeah. site um, where you can log in, mm-hmm. you get your own login and I have my own login for each provider or for each place. Like I have my primary cares at one facility, my rheumatologist and like uh, podiatrist and a couple others are at another facility. Right. So usually there's one login per kind of organization um, and there's a dermatologist. Yeah. So you're so right. A lot of people don't know that. So medicine is like a silo. Each specialist 
is in their own little silo and they don't speak to each other. And I don't think it's for any Ill, Ill intent. I think they just are all so incredibly overworked. I mean, I, I'm in the medical profession, so I understand even when I worked on the unit, you literally have so many patients to take care of. You can barely breathe. So you do the best that you can with what your resources are and you move on. And I think everyone feels that that crunch, that pinch, and and they do the best that they can do. And of course, there's good, better, and best, and there's some not so good. So I think as a patient advocate, what I say all the time is go in your portal, print that information, and bring it to your specialist. Here's yeah. what Dr. So-and-so said. I wanted you to have this information and make it brief. Don't bring, don't bring 50 pages because they're not going to read it. Bring your last report, bring your last set of labs. And yeah. if, if you're in a different system, you don't, you need to bring the labs. But if you're, if you're in the same system, you don't need to bring the labs, but bring the report because they're not going to read Dr. So-and-so's report. So when I go to, you know, Boston, I bring my report from, Mayo in Arizona. When I go to University of Mississippi, I bring my report from Boston. I think it's so important to share that information. I have a geneticist who does the most thorough, comprehensive report, and I bring his report to every single one of my physicians. And they all are very appreciative of that. I have, I only have one kidney and I'm in renal failure with the other kidney. So when I went to my nephrologist the other day, I brought my geneticist report to him and he was incredibly grateful because he wants to be kept apprised of what's going on with the rest of my body, not just my kidneys. Mm-hmm. So I think it's so important to just share that information. It's very, very difficult. How do you keep track of it all? Do you keep digital copies or do you have like binders? Um, I used to do the paper thing, but I have so many positions. It got overwhelming. So I just have like a list of all of my specialists and all of their contact mm-hmm. information, and then everything's in their portal. I mean, and then I okay. have oh, yeah. log in credential to the portal. No, that, that makes, yeah. You don't want to make a system that's harder than it has to be yeah, for no, sure. No, 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 it's no, already no. in there. That makes total yeah, sense. Yeah, it's in there. It's in there. And I cur- I just want to uh, plug super, super quickly, because I think this people have told me it's helpful. I made this two page. PDF, uh, print uh, editable PDF, um, thing that I call the face sheet, which is like a term that they use in healthcare sometimes, like, especially like in inpatient, but, um, it's like a quick, like at a glance, this is the person's picture. This is what their date of birth, their diagnoses treat, you know, and I find that has been really how I made just a template that other people you can download and use yourself. And I also put, cause of course of the occupational therapist to me, you know, what's important to me what's my goal. What are my goals? Like, what am I trying to achieve with my health? Right. Um, I want to be able to, you know, coach my son's soccer. I want to think that those are like reasons, you know, my realistic goals. Um, and that's realistic for me right now. It wasn't like five years ago, you know, so things change, but, mm-hmm. um, but it's a great, it's, it's been helpful for me because when I meet, especially a new provider, I'm able to say like, and this is like, and first of all, it's visually pleasing. I just made it, it's not like super colorful, but it's kind of looks a little nicer than most like medical forms. And so you can kind of say, and it has like my current medications and dosage, like greatest hits of my medical history of like had a baby with a C-section in 2014, you know, um, it, it just takes up two pages and that way you can you can have it even for yourself. Like, cause I also have like 
some of my medications are Walgreens. Some of them are specialty mail order. You know, some of them are from X doctor, some are from Y. So you have a list of your current medications, current dosages. Um, so that's another little, little tip of, you know, organization. Cause it is it, a lot of people say this, but I'll say it again. It's a full being a chronic illness patient. And especially in your case, a rare disease patient with multiple comorbidities, it is a full-time job, mm-hmm. like just managing your care, managing the logistics of your care, not just the actual physical, like <laughs> no, your physical. Very true. That's yeah. very true. And to your point, I do carry a separate list of just my medications, my allergies, mm-hmm. my diagnoses, and my surgeries. That takes up one whole sheet, just that. Yeah. Because I'm yeah. on so many meds. I've had so many allergies um, and oh, yeah. surgeries and diagnoses. But I yeah. keep multiple copies because every time I go to a physician, my meds change almost on a monthly basis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I just have to keep updating them and then I carry them with me. Yeah. And I think, yeah, sometimes I remember that, or that I, I think, oh my gosh, I have to give this to my husband. Cause like, if there was an emergency, oh, you know, yeah. like I got, I got in a car accident in 2016 and, um, the biggest miracle wasn't that I survived. But it was my husband answered the phone <laughs> because I was like, when I was sitting there, like in total shock, like my hands were just shaking and I called him in. Um, but I was like, yeah, he wouldn't know. Cause I, it's not, he doesn't, you know, he's not as involved in my care, um, to like the degree of like knowing he knows the name of my medication. He could look in the fridge to know what one of them is. He knows where I store the medications. He doesn't know all of it, you know, just because right. it's, you know, it's just not something that is, yeah, that I, I'm like, oh, did I remind you that I'm on 25 milligrams? And, you know, he doesn't, yeah. <laughs> there's no, that's not like a conversation that comes up. Uh, so making sure other people in your life have a copy of that is also really good. Very important. Yeah. 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 Um, and then, you know, on the coat, you seem very level-headed and I know you, <laughs> but, um, but you know, what are, you mentioned earlier that you, you know, in terms of you use like, you know, meditation, and, um, but what are some of the other like ways that have things that have helped you cope like emotionally? Cause it's, you know, it's a lot to cope, yeah. to have to handle all this. Well, a few things. First of all, I have a therapist and my, my geneticist, one of the first things he said when we started seeing him, my kids have, have some of the diseases that I have. They both have kids. My son is 36 and my daughter's 42. They don't like when I call them kids. <laughs> They're your kids forever. Yeah. They're my kids forever. <laughs> they both have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and they have dysautonomia as well. Um, when we started seeing the geneticist, one of the first things he said is, I am going to strongly, and I'm using the word strongly, recommend that you see a therapist. Anyone with a chronic illness needs to see a therapist. Good for them to advocate for therapy. Oh, he's very, very adamant about it. So we do. So I have a therapist that I speak to. And what, this is what he said. He goes, I don't care how, how much support you have, how many family members you have that are supportive or how many friends you have. He said, you need a third party, completely impartial, who's professionally trained to deal with this, to help you through this kind of mess. And so we wow. do. We do. We have a, a therapist. Not, none of us have the same, but. Oh, okay. Um, I was gonna say, oh, you share one. That's no, cool. no, 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 no. Because my yeah. kids don't live in the same town that I live in. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. yeah. We actually all live in different towns. And um, so I I speak to a therapist on a regular basis who's been wonderful. I've been a long term meditator for many many years. I use deep breathing, um, many different techniques for um, stress relief, and I am a 
studier of philosophy, in particular, one called Stoicism that I've been practicing for a couple of years now, which is very helpful. And I have honestly never really been stressed about my health. My family is, <laughs> but I'm not. Wow. So I've been very lucky. How old were you when you were diagnosed with your first condition? I was, let's see, my son was two. So I was 32 when I was diagnosed with EDS. I had been sick for most of my life, but oh, not okay. diagnosed. I had oh. had many, many instances. I had had, by then, I had already had probably six or seven orthopedic surgeries. But and people, what, what was the explanation why? from the doctor? Oh, we don't know. Your, this is all my orthopedic surgeon used to say. You're a real loosey-goosey. <laughs> oh, my God. It's kind of like how um, there's this there's this uh, DSM diagnosis diagnostic statistical manual that's what the DSM is um, called uh, uh, developmental coordination disorder also known as like dyspraxia which used to be known as clumsy child syndrome <laughs> which I mean I kind of like the name clumsy child syndrome because it's adorable but yeah I know I mean most kids don't I mean we're clumsy is that pejorative because it kind of describes the syndrome, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's developmental coordination disorder, but, um, but yeah, so I think that could be along, along with it, a uh, loosey goosey syndrome, but yeah, but they didn't know, did, when did EDS become a disorder or it? Oh, I don't remember when it, it, Interesting. it, it was, it was described way back, way, way back. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But Sorry. It wasn't well known for a while. I joined the Ehlers-Danlos Society in the eighties. Okay. So I mean, oh, maybe okay. we got it then, but it was, then it was considered really rare. Oh, and the sub, the 13 subtypes were not even described in until 2017. Yeah. The inter- <gasps> yeah it's, it's become much more known okay. as time has gone on. They wow. didn't tell me I had, they told me I had type three back in the eighties. Oh, it was wow. like, there were okay. types, numbers of types. And I think there were only eight types back then. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. This is okay. Sorry. I'm getting us off track, but I'm, I'm just, I'm putting a link in the show notes now as we speak to make sure to give people more info because it is very, I mean, I could say almost confidently someone listening to this who has mm-hmm. RA probably also has EDS, um, Ehlers syndrome and hadn't known, you know, been diagnosed yet. Um, but okay. So stoicism philosophy. Okay. Was your son, your second child or your first child? Sorry. My son was my second child. My okay. daughter had had a couple of elbow dislocations when she mm. was small, but all they kept saying to me is, oh, it's just nursemaid's elbow. Don't worry about it. And that is somewhat common to yes. putting kids in like, I remember learning about that in school, putting kids in their jackets, you dislocate their elbow. <laughs> yeah. Except my son had so many patellar dislocations and those are kneecap dislocations. Oh, yeah. He would fall. He would walk. His, he would walk, his kneecaps would just pop off oh, that's and not, he would just yeah. drop on the floor. But he was such a happy kid. He would just like, ah! and then <laughs> it was, I would slide it back on <laughs> and wow. he would get back up and walk again. But I took him to our, our pediatrician and she said, there's something going on here. And he had had multiple elbow dislocations too. Mm-hmm. And an orthopedic surgeon was able to identify. Matter of fact, the orthopedic surgeon looked at my son and then asked me to come over and he looked in my eyes. And he said, you all have an, a, a collagen defect. You have some kind of connective tissue disorder. It turns out the whites of our eyes, the sclera, were blue, which is common in a um, connective tissue disorder because the white 
your white is supposed to be white and ours are blue because you can see through into the eye you can see the black of the eye it makes it look blue oh my gosh and that's so a good was, like quick test not everybody not everybody has okay. it but for okay. some people but he was a wow. very very astute local orthopedic surgeon and he wow. sent us down to the joint disease hospital in manhattan because we lived in upstate new york where there's not much <laughs> yeah and they, oh my gosh they diagnosed us they put us through a whole panel and, and so you said my son, my daughter, myself, and turns out my twin has it. My brother has it. And most of my twin kids have it. Wow. Is your twin identical? Not at all. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> Looks nothing like me. Okay. Okay. Now, okay. But you said, I, I need to, I need to circle back to something. You said you don't feel stressed about okay. your health. Do you feel stressed about your children's health? I feel more stressed about my children only because. I feel like right. I'm interrogating you. Sorry. I just didn't mean to think. <laughs> so Jan, where were you on the night of October 1st? Were you stressed? No. <laughs> uh, only because they were not as diligent about caring for themselves as I am. My daughter is now because she actually just went to a rheumatologist and they think she has ankylosing spondylitis. Mm. So I'm concerned about this whole connection between EDS and autoimmune diseases. Yeah. So she um, is being presently um, seen by the same rheumatologist that I see mm-hmm. because I was concerned that she had some kind of autoimmune disease. She's dis- displaying some kind of symptoms. Um, my son is 36 and invincible. <laughs> in his head or in real life? In his head. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry. In his head. He knows he has EDS and he's yeah. in multiple dislocations. So he is very, very muscular. Mm-hmm. He has a very demanding physical job. So he has developed very strong muscles and it mostly prevents his um, dislocations, except when he's occasionally doing something overly physical and then he has a dislocation. It, it requires for him, I can put my own dislocations back in now, but I don't oh, have the wow. muscles he has. He requires sedation and physician assistance mm. to put his dislocations back. So he's not on board with the going to all the medical care that m- my daughter and I do. So I'm more concerned about him than mm-hmm. I am about um, my daughter. Well, and that's pretty, and, and being overall having more stress about your kids than yourself is a pretty, you know, common yeah. thing in, in yeah. life. I just, I just was curious because it is, you know, it's a rare person living with so many serious, you know, conditions that is able to, I don't, I'm trying not to say this and like, you achieved this goal of not, you know, but you are managing your stress in a way that's not, uh, that is not causing a lot of stress, which is unusual. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I speak to, as a stressed you, person. No. <laughs> you have to know me better. My my nickname is Zen Jan. Zen Jan. Yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. So you were already like you were already Zen at 32 and you had these. Okay. Oh no, no, not at 32. No, no. Oh, okay. Not you weren't. I wasn't. Okay. But I think it came more with age and yeah. lots of challenges. <laughs> as mm-hmm. the challenges of life came, I became more and more calm and tranquil. And I do believe the meditation. I, again, I've been meditating for decades. So I think that has certainly helped. And is there a resource, if somebody's listening to this, like, you know what, I've been 
hearing, I keep hearing my meditation. I've been on the fence about it. Like, is there a, um, a book or website or resource you would recommend for beginners? I know you had a stoicism book too, that you recommended oh. once in the group. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you probably can't see this. this and is I a, see it. A Marcus Aurelius meditations. Okay. That's one of, that's one of them. I mean, I probably have 15 of them, but. <laughs> okay. No, that's great. That's great. Just like a good starting point because, um, you know, there can be some connotations like, oh, I, I'm too, I can't meditate because I'm too like high energy. I'm saying that as something I used to say, you know, and it's like, oh, yeah. if you're high, if you are, you know, somebody whose mind jumps around a lot and all that, it's like, you're like the best person to try meditating because it, you know, will yeah. help you. I, you know, I took a, a class many years ago on mindful meditation, mindfulness meditation. And one of the things that they taught me was you don't have to have a blank mind. Yeah. It's not about getting your mind free of thoughts or, or having a blank mind. It's just mm -hmm. about sitting and focusing on your breath and let, let your thoughts come and go. First of all, just a little, a little share here. I mm -hmm. have ADHD and I don't take meds for it anymore. So mm -hmm. I've learned to use my breathing and my meditation to stay calm and if I didn't have the meditation, I think now I can tell you, I still get distracted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't cured the distraction of ADHD, but I have, I have definitely used it to be calm and not to be all over the place. So that's super, that's super helpful. I'm sure that a lot of yeah, people listening have that. Yeah, for sure. And there's no wrong or right way to do meditation. I, mm -hmm. I use used to use guided meditations and whatever works, there's no right or wrong. There really mm -hmm, is. Mm -hmm. Yay. Well, I'm sure you've inspired some people to meditate <laughs> listening to this. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is like community, like what role has that played on your journey, you know, with, with all this, obviously you're coping really well on your own, but <laughs> Well, usually it's helped hugely. I mean, one of the reasons that I joined your uh, Room to Thrive group was for community. Although I did learn a huge amount about RA, being an RN, I could have just researched it on my own and found it out. But having that sense of community, being with other people who live what you live is so rich and amazing. Because other people don't understand what you're going through. Unless you actually live it, unless you walk in those shoes, it's not the same. So having that sense of community is so, so, so important. When I was with the nonprofit, we always had support groups. And I used to moderate the support groups. And people would sometimes sob and say, I didn't know anybody else felt like me. And so it's so important for people to get together and have that sense of community and know what it's like to feel the same way. Of course, we're all different. We all have different personalities. We all feel differently. But the bottom core is we all suffer the same, but we all rejoice the same and we all feel the same. So it's just so important to be with other people who, who can understand. It's the understanding. Yeah, absolutely. And it's almost like when you hear someone talk about what they've been through and you've been through that same thing. It's like, you look at that person and like, they survived it. 
And it's like, they survived. Therefore I can survive too. But for some reason, just saying to yourself on your own, I know I can survive this. Like I will get through it. It's different than like, it's, it's like that old uh, saying in, in writing, like show, don't tell, you know, it's like someone telling you, you can get through this is different than you seeing she got through that or he got through that. Like they are on the other side or they're, or they're, they're in the thick of it and they're managing to, to thrive as best that they can in the moment or just survive. Cause that's what they need in the moment. And yeah, I've, I've been, you know, I've honestly at first started groups cause I've always loved groups, but also I was like, I want to, I feel like one-on-one is too slow. Like I want to have a bigger impact on a, you know, and I also want to protect my energy as somebody also living with, you know, a fatiguing illness. I'm like, okay, if I do a group, you know, groups, I can help, you know, 20 people in one hour versus 20 hours to help 20 people one-on-one, but it has been so much, had much more impact than I even thought, you know, it could, because of that, that sense of, I can just see people's like shoulders relaxing, you know, and like the sense of relief that you're not the only one or you're not alone, you know? So sorry, just on my soapbox now. Share, plus the share. Sometimes yeah. people will share things with you and go, oh, I never thought of that. Yeah. The sharing yeah. the specifics, like sharing yeah. tips and yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah, it's not just sharing our emotions and the emotional ability. That's super helpful, but also being like, you know, or just sharing, we can't, no one can keep up with the news and the latest developments with the vaccines and all that during COVID and, you know, oh, hey, did you see that this came out or did you ask your doctor about that? And again, I know it's, you know, you can, uh, it's not for a form for medical advice, but it's more like a information sharing, you know, um, and encouragement. There was definitely a few times, you know, where people were like, oh, I'm so nervous to go to ask my doctor. Like, I kind of want to advocate for myself, but I don't know. And everyone's like, you can do it. You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like aggressive encouragement. (laughs) Yeah. It's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, I know it's funny because rheumatoid arthritis isn't considered a rare condition because it's like, you know, about one in a hundred, I believe. I don't know. I always forget if it's one in a hundred women or one in a hundred adults. I think it's one in a hundred. I think it's less, it's more rare for men than, than women. Mm. Um, but point being, you know, it's, it's not like a rare officially, you know, condition, but it can feel when you're young and you don't know anyone else in your community, um, or, you know, regardless of what your age is, actually, I'm just thinking about the things people have said to me, like, you know, I got diagnosed with this thing that seemed really overwhelming. And like, I didn't like, I Googled it and it looked like people that like were totally like older than me. And like, what is my life going to be like? And, you know, now they can like see a, a breadth of people living in different kinds of lives. Some of the people in the room to five group are on disability. Some people are retired. Some people are working full time, you know, and it's some people's diseases and remissions. Some is super active and uncontrolled. And it's just like figuring out ways that each person can improve their quality of life and is, is really helpful and ways to just sit with the present moment, you know, be able to sit with, this is what we're going through and it might get better in the future. It might not, but we'll get through it, you know, and we're here together. Yeah. And you, I mean, each person like shares so much with as well. You it's, is one of those things like the, that cliche that teachers say, like, I learned more from you than you learned from me, you know, but <laughs> um, yeah, it really is a special thing. So th- thank you for sharing. And I, I want to be uh, sense of your time, but I do have some, I just started a new segment 
that I'm calling like rapid fire questions or like lightning round. Although like in true me fashion, these could each be like a long discussion, <laughs> but um, what would be like your best quick tip for like somebody who's newly diagnosed who like just got their diagnosis and is like, Oh my gosh, what would you say to that? Or word of encouragement. Oh, I would say join, join, well, first of all, join Room to Thrive because you'll learn oh. and have support. I think it's yeah. really important to reach out for support. I think that's the most yeah. critical thing. So you don't feel alone. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I was so stubborn and I was like, I can do this. I got this. I can do this on my own. No, it was so much easier with a group with, with support. It is. Um, and do you have a favorite like arthritis gadget or tool in your toolbox? I guess we kind of already covered this a little bit, but. Well, well, we did accept the one thing I didn't mention is I am Italian and I love to cook. And I think my favorite tools are my kitchen gadgets. Yeah. Because I have a lot of, and actually I got a lot of them from your website, but awesome. I did. I have like the, I don't know what you call it. It's like the right angle knife. Yeah, I just call it the handle knife, but there is an official name for it. Yeah, yeah. There is, like, a 90 degree called. angle knife. Yeah, 90 degree angle knife. I have that and I use that every single time I, I'm cooking. Love that. Because so I helpful. could not hold the other one at all. It was so painful. This one is so easy to hold. So That's one of that. my favorites too. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I mean, I could go on and on about the kitchen gadgets, but I would say my kitchen gadgets. Yeah. And that's one of the lesser known ones too. So I'm glad you mentioned it. Oh, I love that one. Um, yeah. I did a video about it for a global healthy living foundation, which is like the parent nonprofit of creaky joints. And then a bunch of chefs were like critiquing. And I was like, this is not about being like, I'm not a chef. I'm just showing you a different <laughs> knife. It was so hilarious. They're like, why are you using that knife for bread? I'm like, I'm just demonstrating it on bread. They're like, it's not a bread knife. I'm like, it's okay. I'm showing the fact that it's a 90 degree angle knife. Anyway. Um, so, um, do you have a favorite, uh, book or show or movie you have watched recently? Well, Marcus Aurelius' meditation is my favorite book and I still read it every day, but wow. right now what I'm into is funny like when I'm really exhausted and I just want to kind of relax and chill, what I'm doing is rewatching all of the old ER shows. Oh, wow. Once a nurse, always a nurse. And I'm kind of an adrenaline junkie. And wow. ER was written, I don't know if you know, ER was written by a, a physician. Uh, Michael Crichton was a physician. And it is the most what? true to life, medically accurate medical show ever written. So what I want to get my medical thrills, <laughs> I sit down, put my earbuds in, put on my net, my uh, Hulu and watch the ER reruns. That's amazing. I didn't know. I knew that they had like doctors on staff writing. That but I didn't one know. was written by a doctor. Written by a doctor. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So it's very and, medically accurate. Okay. Oh, that's so cool. I did not. I was just, yeah, I need, I need to watch it. I watched a lot of Dr. House. I didn't watch as much ER. I know Dr. House is like the least is not very realistic in terms of the amount of time spent per patient. Yeah. <laughs> this is very accurate. And I, my husband laughs because I'll, I'll sometimes get so into it. I'll watch like three shows in a row. Oh, you crazy girl. No. <laughs> Do you have a favorite uh, mantra or inspirational saying or quote? Um, it's hanging on my right across from me it says I choose tranquility and peace of mind oh I love it I'm writing this down <laughs> and then what is something that's bringing you joy right now 
The autumn leaves. I absolutely yes. love them. It is so gorgeous. The oh. colors are brilliant and bright. I need to visit. I'm um, inviting myself. No. We're kind of at peak. Well, we're a little pre-peak, but it is just yeah. so beautiful. No matter where you look, the bright, bright reds, oranges, and yellows. It's gorgeous. Oh, I love it. And then um, this is, again, this could be a whole episode, but what does it mean for you to live a good life with rheumatoid arthritis? Uh, this is kind of easy for me because I, no matter what I had, whether it was EDS prior or dysautonomia or RA, for me, living a good life is living the life that you want to live in the moment. I live in the present moment always. So whether it's with the disease, without a disease, with the pandemic, without the pandemic, it's living in the present moment in any joy that you can find. I love it. I yeah. love it. It sounds, it sim sounds simple, but when you start actually practicing present moment awareness, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you realize how much of your life is spent living in the past or the future. Oh yeah. I mean, ruminating over the past or ruminating, pre-ruminating about the future, thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow, what could go wrong. How do you, how do you cure or fix your health and what's going to happen to me? Yeah. That's beautiful. And is there anything else you wanted to share with the listeners before we wrap up? You're like, oh, I really want to make a point about this. <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so. I'm just happy that I found you on my journey and it's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you. I, I'm just in awe of your um, mindfulness and I'm, I'm very inspired to, to get that book, the um, meditations did you say Marcus Aurelius? Am I Marcus that right? Aurelius meditations, and it's an easy read because they're very brief little meditations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I know that people listening are going to be really, you know, inspired by and and what's the word edified by your, <laughs> you know, uh, outlook and some of the tips, especially with managing multiple comorbidities. So thank you so much. And well, thank uh, you for having me. I will put Jan's links um, and links to things we talked about in the show notes, including a link to episode 71, where I talked with Emily Rich, an occupational therapist who has POTS, uh, postural orthotactic tachycardia syndrome about um, hypermobility, EDS and POTS 101, um, and kind of a little bit of the research and the overlap between these conditions in RA because it is interesting and there's some additional tips there, but thank you so much, Jan. Thank you, I hope you have a wonderful fall day. You too. Thanks. Bye for now. Bye -bye. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the arthritis life podcast. This episode is brought to you by room to thrive an educational program. I created from scratch to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported, and connected in a matter of weeks. You can go through the pre-recorded course on your own, or you can take the course along with a support group. Learn more at the link in my show notes, or you can always go to www.myarthritislife.net. And if you like this podcast, I would be so honored if you took the time to rate and review it. I also encourage you to share it with anyone you know who might benefit from it. I also wanted to remind you that you can find full transcripts, videos, and detailed show notes with hyperlinks for each episode on my website, www.myarthritislife.net. If you have any ideas for future episodes, or if you want to share your story or wisdom on the podcast, 
just shoot me an email at info at myarthritislife.net. I can't wait to hear from you.